This episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Instructional Design and Technology Program at Emporia State University. The IDT program at ESU prepares individuals for leadership in design, development, and integration of technology into K-12, as well as private sector teaching and other areas of organizational training. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and reporter here at EdSurge, a national publication covering education. Bernard Bull is someone who's been a longtime champion of experimental higher ed models. And one of his inspirations throughout his career has been a tiny college in Vermont called Goddard College. For years, Bull even carried around a tattered copy of, of the book about the college's model in his backpack, as he progressed through his career as an education professor and and later a chief innovation officer at Concordia University, Wisconsin. So Goddard is a place that doesn't believe in letter grades and doesn't give them at all. There are no traditional courses, and and students design their own curriculum with with the help of faculty and students. And this small college has shaped a long list of of famous cultural figures in America who, who attended for a time, including the playwright David Mamet, actor William H. Macy, and and the jam band Fish. The song you're hearing now was the senior thesis of the band's lead singer while he was at Goddard. Passing through the corridor, I came upon an aging knight who leaned against the wall. One day not that long ago, Bull got offered what he viewed as a dream job of being president of Goddard. But (laughs) there was one kind of monumental catch. As he went through the interview process for the job, he found out that this famed college is is broke, and it's in danger of closing. Goddard's a creditor had put it on probation over concern about the college's financial stability and oversight. So here you have this innovator who loves to dream up new ideas for colleges, winding up in the position of having to cut staff and, and make a kind of desperate fundraising effort just to save this unusual campus. He talks about his struggles to do this the way an environmental activist talks about the need to save some rare endangered species. Maybe you've never heard of this particular critter, but in some part of the ecosystem, it plays an important role, he argues. He said he's very quickly learned that it's, it's much harder to convince someone to, to give money to save an experimental college that already exists than it would be to maybe convince them to fund something brand new, even if it had a similar idea. He knows his job is going to be tough. Can he pull it off? I sat down with Bull last week in Pittsburgh, where he was attending a conference on innovative teaching at Carnegie Mellon University. He shared some of his ideas for turning the college around and made his case for why there should be a lot more of these small-scale colleges trying a range of educational approaches. Here are highlights of that conversation. Maybe you could just remind folks Goddard is famously different. For instance, you have no letter grades. That might get people's attention first off. But there, could you just very quickly give the elevator pitch about how what, what Goddard's model is? Yeah, I'll give a, kind of my, my little like one paragraph, maybe one and a half paragraph uh, sort of description. So Goddard was launched in the 1930s amid the growth of fascism in the West with the belief that people um, in a democratic society needed to have voice choice ownership and agency. That if we have a citizenship that believe that their voice doesn't matter, they can't make a difference, that there's going to be a problem in that democracy. Um, and and so what uh, it, was, it was created in part around the question, what does it look like to create a learning community where people where their voices are honored and nurtured, where they develop the capacity to make complex choices, um, 
and uh, where they are in the driver's seat in many ways for their learning. Their learners are co-creators of what they learn. So at Goddard, we don't have traditional courses. We don't have letter grades. Instead, we use rich narrative feedback. Transcripts look like unlike anything most people have ever seen in higher ed. A transcript could be 15, 20 pages in some cases. Um, and um, and uh, students, when they come in each semester, we're, oh, by the way, we're also low residency in our current version. So students come. So, so they're there like a couple weeks a semester? or Yeah, yeah 10 days each semester. Um, varies a little bit by program. But this, so they'll come for 10 days. During those 10 days, a lot of rich community building, connecting with faculty and other students, um, a lot of student-created activities. So if it's a writing group, the students might co might just uh, spontaneously develop uh, spontaneously develop an evening uh, readings where they all come in and they read their you know piece of, of writing and give each other feedback. So a lot of like student-generated. But then during that week, this, each student is asked this powerful question that's sort of at the heart of our of, of our educational model, which is, what do you want and need to learn this semester? And um, they do have program level goals or outcomes still. I mean, uh, we don't call them outcomes, but that there are broad program goals they have to meet as they progress through. There's some requirements to graduate still. But, um, but the students have a lot of freedom. And so a student may say, I really want to focus upon poetry. And so they essentially develop a personal learning plan with some help from an advisor sometimes or other classmates. And um, what, you know, what are you going to learn? How are you going to uh, provide evidence of your learning in the form of some kind of products? Um, maybe it's a collection of poems, other things like that. What are you going to read? All of those pieces. And, um, and then there, for, we do attribute sort of credit value. So it's going to be, for most full-time students, it would be the, uh, for an MFA in writing, it would be 12 credits worth of, of work. Um, and in some programs, the student is working with a single advisor for all 12 credits. In other programs like our psychology program, where they're a little bit more external requirements in terms of what they have to know or be able to do in order to be a, a licensed um, uh, counselor, um, then in that case, they might be working with two or three or four advisors. So they have one personal learning plan broken up into these four pieces that, and then we, we call those three credits, but they're not really courses in the way people think of it. So that's more than two paragraphs, I realize. You, I get going on it and I realize how incredibly distinct this place is. There are others that are doing things like this, but not many. And you've had some famous alum, like David Mamet, the playwright, um, the band Fish, the jam band Fish, who uh, people might know. Yeah, yeah, and William H. Macy also, who was a student under, under uh, David Mamet, and some incredible musicians and actors and activists and, and lots of people. People might know, not know their names, but Goddard, I think, I'm, I happen to believe, even if I don't have the, the, like, um, the quantit quantitative analysis in front of me, uh, I believe that this community has nurtured people who have a bit of a entrepreneurial spirit to them maybe not entrepreneur in the way some think of it not silicon valley entrepreneur although we have had some of those too um but more social entrepreneurs and and a bit of an activist side to them They've, they have really strong social justice values so for example um we have alums who run businesses around uh uh, helping people build tiny houses or helping people uh, build their own stone mason stoves and uh, solar power for your homes. And, and so some that are kind of hands-on trades and they do the work and some of them see it as an expression of their art or design. Others see it, uh, I don't know, just uh, developing a more sustainable world. Uh, lots of different motivations for them. 
Um, but it's, it's, it's fascinating. Oh, and, and in the education world, we have a lot of faculty. I mean, our MFA programs, the ter- terminal degrees, we have a lot of people who go off to, to lead and teach and, and even launch new programs at, at universities all over the country and, and even other parts of the world. School founders, a lot of founders of Montessori schools and other kinds of alternative innovative K-12 schools also come from Goddard. Before we get into some of the stuff you're bringing to the campus and some ideas you have, um, I, I wanted to give people a sense of the stakes because it is a challenging time for for Goddard, despite its its rich history. In fact, you mentioned that you know there are requirements for students. You are accredited institution, even though we have all these different you know methods. But your accreditor, I guess, before you came, put put the institution on probation, and you've got some challenges there. Do you want to talk just a minute about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually came because of the probation. I was I was a candidate before I knew about Goddard being on probation. But then when I heard that it was on probation, that's what really moved me to uh, one of the reasons I really wanted the job. I think I could have probably, in my mind, said, oh, it's, it's a great opportunity. I'm sure they have some other candidates. I mean, they had, I'm sure they had a lot of applicants. Um, but <laughs> but I, was, you know, I was working on my seventh book. I had all these other projects. I had just launched a, a, a little business that was uh, called Birdhouse Learning Labs that was... Uh, intended to do sort of outsourced R&D for K-12 and higher ed, and, and I'm obviously not doing that right now. Um, and, um, and I had a, a good job that I, that I enjoyed before. Um, but Goddard, as, my background is studying um, educational innovation, alternative experimental models of education. I've been doing that for decades. And, and so um, there's, there are a number of books about Goddard's history, and there's one I even carried around um, uh, to know for real. And it, it has the original words of the first president, Tim Pitkin, and shares their vision for the college. I carried that book around in my backpack uh, years before I ever had applied for this job for a year. And it's one of those books. I don't know if any, any other listeners have this or if you have one, but I, don't, I have a handful of books that you can hardly read the text anymore because you've taken so many notes and highlighted it so many times and read through it. That, that book... Has, it was probably one of the biggest influences for my career in terms of innovation and um, experimentation. So, um, so all of that kind of leads up to this. So when I, I go through the interview process, um, halfway through, I didn't hear from them for a little bit, and then they emailed me back and they said, you know, we're very interested in you still, but uh, we got some new information we need to share with you um, and see if you're still in, interested in this. And they sent it to me, and it was it was uh, information from the accreditor about um, uh, it was a show cause notice, and a show cause is actually not probation. This is show us cause why we should not remove accreditation, and um, and so um, so that's a serious thing. Yeah, it's pro- pretty serious. So now I, I said to them, uh, I said, no, I don't know if I said this to them, but I know I thought, I want this job. I really do. I want to step in. I've always had the dream of, of launching a new college or a new school. I, I like starting new things. And, um, and this in some ways is, is not, a, a, this is not a, a new start, but it is a new beginning for a really persistent, beautiful expression of higher ed. Last time you interviewed me, one of the, the key things things that I shared was I believe in the importance of a diverse higher ed ecosystem, diverse methodologies and and, and approaches and philosophies. And and Goddard is an important part of that ecosystem. And I would hate to see these beautiful expressions of progressive education become extinct in our higher ed system. I think it would be less because of that. So so I actually accepted the job. Um, I signed the contract 
and I went before my start date of November 1st. It was in October that we went and we, we went and visited the commission and that was, uh, it wasn't certain whether we would have accreditation or not moving forward. And uh, the group before me had prepared the, the uh, acting president, the board chair, and others. They did a really amazing job of, of demonstrating what they were going to do to kind of get things back on track. And I said, and, and I was proof that they actually got someone to say yes to a <laughs> to the job. So maybe I was the only one. No, I don't think so. But um, but <laughs> uh, but uh, but they you know turned out favorable. They gave us some time. And the next checkpoint was going to be a visit um, in in November. So there's going to be a site visit. Now, I started November 1st. November, that was a Friday, and I believe November 3rd was a Sunday, if that's right. And I had dinner with the visitors from, for, for the, you know, the visiting team. Um, and then they, they visited for the first week, and they produced a report. And that report went to the commission, and then we were going to have to stand before the commission again on February 28th. Um, and um, and, and all, everything they had in front of them uh, they sent they sent it back to us, and then we can give some feedback and all. But basically, they were going to make a they were going to have to make a decision about us on the basis of <laughs> well, for me, it was my first week on the job, right? And then some stuff that we could put um, put, put in there as well. And Netchi's very reasonable, and they allowed us to kind of submit some information about updates, recent updates, which was really helpful. And in that, I gave a list of contingency plans because uh, uh, when you're in a situation like this, there are lots of colleges that are fragile. Um, I believe that the ethical role of a president or a leader is the first responsibility can't actually be to save the school. The first responsibility has to, has to be to fulfill our ethical and legal responsibilities to the students. And um, so if a college closes suddenly, which has happened too many times, um, students can be stuck, and maybe the college has arranged something for them to transfer elsewhere. Um, I mean, that's what they're expected to do. Um, uh, but it, it's, if it's really sudden, it's hard for the students to get that done. And, um, and so uh, we had put together a plan. We had basically six or seven contingencies and, and options. If this happens, and this. If this happens, and this. We presented it to them. We'd made a lot of progress. We raised more money in the first uh, first four months that I was there, not because of me, but because of a new development director who did a great job. Um, more money than we had in any single 12-month period in the last um, 10 years. We still have a lot to go, a lot of room to go. Um, we'd made some key hires, and um, and we'd reduced our staff because we still had, st and we still have some work to do there. But we still had staff and faculty for a much larger school. You know, we're less than 500, and and we were staffed for maybe six or 800. Yeah, less than 500 students. You mean? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, so anyway, long story to your question here, but. Um, it, but that February 28th meeting went really well, and, and that she has given us some space. Uh, so our next check-in, we have to send a report in December. Um, but we're on probation, and, and, and that's the tricky part, because people, uh, when they hear probation, and I've even seen this, um, this is, I'm critical of journalists when I think that they're being unethical, <laughs> right? And you, you probably, people use the word unethical too, too much, I'm sure you, you would say. But, but there was an article recently, and I won't call anyone out, where they were talking about um, uh, schools on probation and potential new policies from the U.S. Department of Ed regarding the length of, of what probation could be. And, and it was really 
concerning to me because the way the article is written, it made it sound like most people who are on probation are on probation because there's question about their academic quality, which is actually not the primary means by which, by which most schools are on probation, and it's not for us. It was a question around our financial strength and around whether or not we had um, appropriate uh, board oversight around that and some governance kinds of questions. Our academic programming is, is novel and distinct and beautiful and strong. Um, it's different, but it's it's really strong, and, and we have incredibly loyal students and alumni who love it. Uh, it may not be the model for every person, but for those it is for, they really connect with it. And um, and so um, so anyway, we, now here we are, and and it's still a great place to get your education. We have for people who want to get involved in experimental alternative models of education, um, or just have that in their minds and teach in legacy kinds of schools, public and other schools, great education programs, and MFA in writing that's one of the top ranked low residency programs in the nation, MFA in interdisciplinary arts, um, uh, undergraduate program, a lot of adult learners coming back, but some students coming from uh, from schools, either they resonate with this model, some went to project-based schools, they did unschooling, other things like that. So there's so much to offer. And it's an upward battle though because people see that we're on probation and they don't know what that means. Um, and there is a risk and so it is fragile and we have to be honest with people as they consider the college but I think like uh, as you're hearing this and I guess as other people may be listening and hearing this too um, there aren't many options like this so um, if people do come uh, they're contributing to the future of the college I mean they're helping build the stability that we need we're going to take a short pause for a word from our sponsor and then we'll be back to hear what Bull's plan is to save Goddard Are you interested in creating an innovative, technology-driven classroom where your students can thrive? Emporia State University's Instructional Design and Technology Master's program can help you do just that. The IDT program is available entirely online, so you can complete the coursework from the comfort of your own home. And it's now offered in an accelerated format. If enrolled full-time, you can complete the degree in as little as a year. Given the diverse career tracks in instructional design, multimedia, and technology, This program offers students the flexibility to customize their course of study based on individual goals and interests. Graduates of the program are well-prepared to practice their unique, multidisciplinary profession in a variety of settings, including business, K-12 schools, higher education, government, military, and to pursue doctoral studies. Learn more at emporia.edu slash grad. That address once more is emporia.edu slash grad. Now back to the conversation. I take your point. I mean, I, I'm not going to comment on whatever article you're talking about, but I think the I think the fair question uh, or one one attempt to to ask for those very students, as you said, is 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 this going to be able to continue? Whether it's the academic program or the in the or in the end the financials that 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 shutter a place, it almost it almost is a mo- it almost is an academic question. If you like you said, if there's a harm to the students by a closing, and so one of the questions then is. You know how is the enrollment doing? And maybe maybe before we get to that, maybe what are your you know if you're if you've got a little bit of time now, and it sounds like you might have some ideas about how to how to make some changes. Can you give some examples of things you are working to change to address maybe both this crisis, but even just where you where you're trying to push the institution? Yeah. So there are a number of pieces to that. One of them is we just didn't have the staff. We were. Um, we, we did not have a full admission staff when I arrived. And we were down to like a third of an admission staff. So we have a full admission staff now. 
and, and making sure the, the director of, of admissions is really well supported. And, and, um, and so we have that in place. Um, and that alone is huge because when someone's inquiring, we're getting back to them quickly now. <laughs> and, and that's actually part of the higher ed competitive game is the speed to inquiry. When someone inquires, how quickly do you get back to them? And, um, and so we're doing that. That alone should help us. Although, I mean, we have to hit our enrollment goals. That's really important. And they're modest. We're being very conservative. We're not being overzealous. That's part of what some suspect was part of our concern in the past is we, we got a little more too optimistic about our enrollment goals. And then, and then we set our budget based on those goals. And then when we didn't hit it, we were in some financial str- trouble because we're, we don't have a significant endowment. We're, we're tuition dependent as an institution. And you are down from the peak of the students, right? It was a lot higher a few in 2010, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were, our enrollment has has declined quite a bit over the over the years, and and I believe that this is something that's pretty achievable, though. To uh, we don't have to be thousands of students, you know. This this is viable. This is a viable uh, school under a thousand. It could be really strong at 750, you know. Um, so. Um, so it's not massive, and, and actually, we don't need to be that high. We very we can we can we can operate on, on a much smaller scale. In New England, there are actually a number of small schools that operate fine under three, four, five hundred. Um, you just have to have the structures and the systems accordingly. You can't have um, all of these uh, all of these really niche staff roles and things like that. Um, have to be careful with it. Your, your question, though, about the academics you were talking about, yeah, it is a it is a question, and we're really committed to taking care of our students as, as best as we possibly can through this, and giving and continuing to give them the best possible experience we can. But that's part that's a reality of of probation. It's, there's a risk. What are there sort of new ideas you're bringing to the curriculum? I mean, I know it's a unique place, and maybe it doesn't have very much online, or does it? I don't really know. But is there are there new initiatives in that area that you're that you're sort of spearheading? Yeah, um, so for us, we actually, because we don't have traditional courses, credits, degrees, we have degrees, but not, not courses and credits in the way that people think of them in other places, um, an innovation for us was actually doing something a little more mainstream, which is we didn't have an easy means for someone to um, pursue a non, to be a non-degree seeking student, to actually take a course and get a feel for what this learner-driven experience is like. And so I'm hopeful, and I can't announce it today because I don't know for sure. We're still trying to figure it out. But we're going to be trying to pilot some online um, uh, online programs, or online programs, no, just an online course or two. But with our, our residency piece, we'll do use a, a, a virtual a video conference just for for a couple of courses, um, a handful. I think there's there are a couple around like teaching and teaching and talking about climate change and bilingual education. There, there are a number in, in the pipeline. I don't know which ones we'll actually be offering yet. We'll know in the next couple of weeks. But already as soon as this summer, um, and just getting them out there uh, likely uh, for K-12 teachers and others uh, as one potential audience. Um, so for us, that's kind of funny. That's actually an innovation is finding a way to, u- to offer something within a, a small piece or a course. We are doing some other um, experiments as well um, that may not seem that sort of sexy on the outside, but uh, our programs are low residency and the students come one program at a time. So the MFAW students come and then the next week the EDU students, education students come. And um, and we're actually condensing our residencies. So we're combining programs. So for example, I 
think this may be true. We have the MFA in interdisciplinary arts and education students are going to be sharing a residency week, which is, is a really cool opportunity for cross-pollination and interdisciplinary exploration. So the students could potentially even go to, to sessions hosted by different programs um, that, are, that are offered during that residency. So that's one small innovation. There are lots of other things we'd love to get to in the future. We have to make sure that we're demonstrating that we're stable and we're doing what, we're, what we are right now. We have to make it through this, this kind of tough time. Um, we have accreditation visit. You know, we have December and granted that, we, granted that we're, we're making progress, we're hitting our milestones between now and then. I mean, it's still a little fragile, so I have to you know, adjust monthly. But uh, granted that we're making that progress, we have, and we go through the, the our big accreditation visit. We have some other programs and um, and modalities we'd like to begin to explore, but it'd be premature for me to share too much yet because we'd have to get permission from the accreditors and and doing that when you're on probation isn't really wise. You need to, you know, it's like uh, um, if you uh, if you have some some problem with your car that's making it hard to drive, you don't like think about oh I think I want to paint it a different color. Right, like you have to deal with the most immediate things first. There's a prioritizing involved. Right now, there's all this talk at you go to the conferences like the ASU GSV Summit or other ones. Everything, a lot of the innovators want to do scale. Yep. And you look at a place like Minerva and its software that's trying to be able to, to do elite education at scale. But in a way, your this model that you are part of now at Goddard and the other examples you mentioned that you're excited about having make sure that you preserve them. These are all like serving such a small number of students per institution. Why, why is that the thing at a moment where we have such needs as a society for training, retraining? Yeah, so I, I think uh, training and retraining is, is one part of education, and that's important, um, and it's critical. I think that uh, here's the, the concern I have in the modern educational system. It's a metaphor I'm, I'm just starting to use. Actually, I was on the flight to where we are right now at this event where we're talking, um, and, and I had this thought. I said, uh, I was actually flying, and I looked down, and I saw some trees, and I thought, man, here, here's the problem. In, in education, too, too many people are trying to study the forest while ha- by hanging out in the lumberyard. We've cut down the trees and we've kind of neatly categorized them and everything like that. Um, and, and we think, oh, okay, now it's going to be better because it's, we can systematize it and organize it and quantify it and all of those kinds of things. And those are good and important. And society would not be where it is today in healthcare and all sorts of places without some of those measures. And science is, I'm not being anti-scientific <laughs> here, you know. But there's also something really deeply human about education that we have to remember. And, and educational institutions are not just, uh, are, are not just uh, I know this is cliche, but they're not just factories producing, producing workers. Um, they are expressions of beliefs, people's deeply held beliefs, values, and philosophies. And that's why I'm an advocate for, um, uh, for a diverse higher ed ecosystem, is because each school is an expression of part of our culture. And there are people with different beliefs and values. That's why we have faith-based schools from different traditions. We have um, we have large flagship R1 schools. We have schools that cater toward the, the trades. We have all these different pieces because that's what makes our country strong. It's that richness and that diversity. Um, and so if we just keep doing scale, if we just talk about how do we how do we focus on the scalable initiatives, we're soon gonna find ourselves with a forest that only have two types of trees, 
or three types of trees, right? And we've never even seen them in the wild because they're in the lumberyard. Um, like that's my concern. I, I have no issue. I think there's some beautiful visions around scaling. I, I'm a fan of Southern New Hampshire University and some others who are doing some great, great work in that space and increasing access and opportunity in some new ways. And, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm an advocate for that. But if we're doing it at the expense of some of these other pieces, um, you know, the strength of a democracy uh, part of the strength of a democracy resides in, in how much we attend to those who might be uh, in, uh, that might not make up the majority of the population, right? And that's true ideologically as well. Like how do we, uh, how do we create spaces and look out for a diverse group of people, even if one group only represents, you know, one one thousandth of a percent of the population? Um, and these higher ed systems do that. The other thing is just that uh, these are other, um, I mean, we have the role of, of education as an art and a science, and, and this isn't true for every one of these small schools, but many of these small schools are really embracing sort of the humanities understanding of education in some beautiful ways, experimenting with new aspects of community. Now, I will say this, though. I actually think they're scalable. But, but, but so uh, I'm not saying scalable in terms of Goddard should be 10,000 or 20,000 or 30,000. But why can't there be 500 Goddards? Um, and there could be a way, and I actually believe this is something valuable for those of us in small schools to explore. There could be a way for us to have some shared resources across institutions. There was actually a league of experimental colleges a number of years ago where they helped each other out and supported each other in some ways. What would it look like? And this is me. I probably shouldn't say this. Yeah, I will. Um, the, what would it look like for... 20 of these experimental colleges in the U.S. to come together and to collectively create a new entity, a new non-profit entity that's, that's organized as a co-op, like a cooperative. And it is a, uh, a marketing and recruitment cooperative among all of them. And we would collectively pool our, our resources and support. Each school would be a member of the co-op. And, and we would have individuals neutrally go out and recruit and market for our collection of schools. Like uh, we, we used a sort of, uh, you know, sort of a shared identity and then our distinct identities within. And there are lots of neat possibilities like that that we haven't even touched the surface. And many of us, um, we have to respond really quickly. So um, whether we, we do it in time or not, and that, uh, I have to say this. I know you didn't ask the question, but just as I'm saying all of this, I just want to, some people are really making, I, I believe that's, that's, that's a flawed assumption about these schools. Some of these schools are struggling financially, right? It is not because of educational philosophy. I can say that with confidence. In fact, there are schools with many different educational philosophies that are struggling financially. It is about the financial model, and it's about um, responding to the changing demographics and marketing and admission uh, styles and approaches. It's about adapting. I mean, there are schools that are spending more on marketing, five times more on marketing than is the annual budget of a school like ours. Um, and so we're learning to respond and adapt. It doesn't mean that it's not in demand or it's not of interest, but it's not as easily discoverable. And, and so our finding ways to connect with people who want what we have to offer, we have to figure that out. No, and there's a last question. It's just like, I'm really interested in this, this, uh, this like small college league idea. And so that would be a way to, you know, is that something that, yeah, it seems like an interesting idea to, to address some of this um, scale issue of, of, of you know, the, the idea of having a bunch of small ones, I think it's an interesting it's an interesting concept. It'll be interesting to see if 
you know, if, if there is some way to do it, because obviously collaboration in higher ed is famously difficult and hasn't happened as much. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's absolutely difficult. But, but we, I, I believe, for example, for Goddard, for its future, regardless of, of where we go in the future, um, I mean, if we had the unfortunate situation of, of, uh, uh, of not making it, which I've, we have a good plan. I mean, we're, <laughs> there's a risk, but we're going in the right direction. And, and, and uh, uh, But for our future, regardless, it will involve a lot of collaborations and partnerships with nonprofits, with other groups and individuals. And that's the future of higher ed. I mean, yeah, you and I are having this conversation at the Empirical Educators Conference, and this is a place where colleges are coming together and collaborating in really cool, amazing ways. Oftentimes, that's academics doing it, but we all, I also heard examples of administrators uh, collaborating in new ways, and um, and it's possible. It is a shift from how a lot of institutions think, and because there's a there's a there's there is a sense of competition. Can you give an example? Because I have heard that Goddard, you're thinking about partnerships. Can you give an example of one concrete one that gives a, gives us a sense of what you mean? Yeah, so um, I probably shouldn't because I haven't signed it, but um, they could be a variety. Some would be partnerships that would help us recruit, but we could be mutually beneficial. So, for example, imagine um, an association of, of K-12 schools that has a specific educational philosophy. Um, like Waldorf or Montessori or one of those kinds of things. And, and imagine uh, they're looking for teachers. Who, and the teachers who come out of traditional teacher ed programs often don't fit unless they've had a personal experience with it or something. Um, and so um, our program is, is a great fit. So they need teachers like what we're able to help nurture and, and graduate. And we could really use some of those teachers coming back for... Um, master's degrees from us and we can help nurture and help them grow um, and if there are people in that community in their communities who want to go and, and get their bachelor's in education we also have a path for that so it's this kind of mutually beneficial relationship so there are things like that but there could also be options where there are schools that have shared degree programs like higher ed institutions we have shared degree programs where Goddard may not be for everyone um, for this this um, you know kind of radical learner driven approach, but what if we had a partnership with state schools that didn't have a lot of concerns around um, around enrollment, and a lot of their students do uh, like overseas for a semester or something? What if we were the equivalent of an overseas program so they could come to us for a semester and experience it, and then they could go back to that institution? So it could be lots of you know those those are a couple of ideas, but lots of possibilities like that. Well, it makes me want to visit this campus. It sounds like a very unusual place. And thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us. Yeah, thanks. This has been the EdSurge on Air podcast. You can see more details about Goddard and its model on our show page, bit.ly slash edsurgepod. And if you don't already, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. And if you can, take a moment to leave us a rating, which will help others find the show. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of learning. Thanks for listening.